Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. Today I'm joined by Professor Lawrence Blum to discuss his recent entry on Murdoch in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, as well as his own engagement with Murdoch's work over the past few years. For those of you who are unaware, the SEP is arguably the most important online resource for philosophy if you wish to have a substantial overview of a philosopher or a philosophical movement. So this year's entry on Murdoch is a, was a really important milestone, I think. And if you don't know it or you haven't read it yet, uh, you can find a link to it below in the description box. Larry is Emeritus Professor of Philosophy and Distinguished Professor of Liberal Arts and Education at the University of Massachusetts in Boston and focuses on the philosophy of education, uh, social and political philosophy, race, as well as moral philosophy and psychology. And his works include Friendship, Altruism and Morality. Uh, and the, another one is A True Liberty, Simone Weil and Marxism, um, a book on moral perception and particularity, uh, a, a book on I'm not racist, but the moral quandary of race. And last year's important integrations, the struggle for racial equality and civic renewal that was published by the University of Chicago Press. So a, um, a long and distinguished career. And Larry, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, I'm so uh, pleased to be here and to be part of this. Well, it's, it's 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 wonderful, and uh, and you're a of course a, a podcast regular, having already appeared with uh, Kieran Setia on uh, Five Questions. So if people want to listen to that one, uh, they can also find a link to that in the description below. But perhaps I could start by asking you how you came to Murdoch's work, Larry, and what kind of an impact she had on you in those early years. Were you introduced to her work, or did you discover her yourself? I'm afraid I can't remember the exact origins. But I do remember that I was visiting a, a, a British friend of mine, Vic Seidler, mm. in 1970 or 71, and we rented a house in an area that might be called the Cotswolds or something. Yeah, sure. And, we, and somehow we got a hold of her book then. And it was very important. We just read it and we were just completely enthralled by it. So I can't remember how I originally got it, but I do, you know, I, I really can bring that back from 50 years ago of, of kind of mm. pouring over the book and just Vic and I just like talk, talked about it constantly. And um, I hadn't finished my PhD at that point, um, but I I was very influenced by by Murdoch's work. I look back on the 1980 book, Friendship, Altruism, and Morality that you mentioned. Mm. And I see that I mentioned um, Murdoch in, in several different connections that I was, I was surprised that, <laughs> that she had influenced me in such a complex way. So, so for example, I, I noted the idea of metaphor, the importance of metaphor. That wasn't something that people in philosophy were thinking about that kind of thing back then. And um, the idea of a kind of spurious unity that that Murdoch is kind of often warns against kind of spurious unity. And there's a way of thinking about mm. morality of kind of desiring to reduce it to like a single principle, like utilitarianism. And she gives you resources to, to sort of resist that, that direction. And she had a, in a way, a kind of pluralistic account of morality or morality had kind of different, different strands within it. She didn't really develop that quite as quite as strongly. Um, but anyway, she she just was was very important to my thinking in those years. And in the in the 80s, I wrote a series of essays that were sort of inspired by her. One of them was 
kind of focused on on her. I think it must have been one of the first American articles that was, you know, a scholarly article on Murdoch, but I had several other ones. Moral Perception and Particularity is a collection of essays written in the 80s and early 90s, and the Moral Perception piece, the title piece, was very inf influenced by her promoting the importance of moral perception, not only moral choice, not only moral decision, but the perception you need to get to the place where you make certain kinds of choices. That's an important emphasis of hers in, in sovereignty and in all of her in all of her work. And I I was, you know, no one else was saying, <laughs> no one else was saying that kind of thing. You know, it was also true in the 80s that um some people were interested in Murdoch, but most people didn't know where, how to sort of fit her into the, you know, sort of current view of what academic moral philosophy looked like. So you had people like Hilary Putnam and uh, Martha Nussbaum, who sort of used um, Murdoch for certain purposes, but mm. there was very little direct scholarly literature that looks at something that she wrote and then, you know, sort of talks about it. And sure. it, that really, that didn't really happen until the, practically the 2000s. So, you know, so I was, I was very, very, very influenced uh, by her. And I, it, it sort of in, in the eighties, kind of in the early eighties, the, what's called care ethics. The idea was kind of a feminist. At, at the time, it was sort of coming from sort of a feminist place of thinking that there was a kind of male aspect of this sort of rationalism and principle-based morality of both Kantianism and utilitarianism and care ethics that sort of emphasized a kind of close-in morality that you know took place within the human encounter that was something that Murdoch was taken up by feminist care ethicists. And I was sort of part of that, um, you know, you yes, might say move. Yeah, those those connections that you made quite quite early on. When you're reading it, obviously reading Sovereignty of Good with Vic very early on, not, not long after it had been published. I, I wonder, obviously you worked um, with, with Vic on your work on um, Simone Vale as well. Do you think they had a, that connection also developed? Because of course Murdoch is so so much inspired by Vale. I think we may very well have gotten onto Vale through Murdoch, through right. Murdoch's mention, you know, mm. mention of her. But we took a class that was given by Peter Winch in 1969. I was a student in Oxford in 68, 69. So I think in the spring of 69, Vic and I took a course with Winch, who's a very important Vale scholar. Sure. Um, I, I just can't remember the exact origins of that, but we were certainly interested in the connection between the two, though that book isn't particularly focused on it. The book is about her, Vale's political philosophy. Sure. Yes, but um, it's interesting you say that the, you found Vale through Murdoch rather than the other. Some, sometimes it works the other way around, doesn't it? Um, yeah, sure. uh, for, for philosophers, that's yeah. interesting. And obviously, you've talked a little bit about um, the history of Murdoch's kind of um, in, uh, the engagement with Murdoch in in, in the philosoph uh, philosophical community. Uh, have you been quite surprised that uh, the upswing of interest in Murdoch's philosophy in the past decade or so? Do you think she's saying something? the 21st century that perhaps she wasn't saying to the late 20th? Just not sure that there isn't something chancier mm. about 
the revival of of interest. You know, the collection that Antonaccio and Schweiker did in 96. Yeah. I can't remember the name of it. But that, that was an important, you know, th- th- that was coming from sort of theology, but there were some philosophers in that collection as well. Mm-hmm. And then Justin Brooks's collection was the first um, full collection about Murdoch's philosophy. And that was from, from 2012. Yeah. You know, he, and, and Justin came to Murdoch in a very quirky way. It didn't have, it wasn't an organic thing. People in his department sort of said, we want to have this, uh, you know, conference with Murdoch and you organize it. You know, he didn't know who Murdoch was, but now he's the <laughs> most scholar of yeah. Murdoch in the world. Um, so I, I'm just not, I'm just not completely sure. I mean, one thing that is true is that much of the interest in Murdoch is not necessarily coming from within a really mainstream professional philosophy, you know, partly because she was a novelist. Mm. People are kind of drawn in through being interested in her, in her novels or just being interested in literature more generally. And it's also true that philosophy itself has become, um, you know, sort of more pluralistic. There are a lot of more different trends. So there's space for people who like Murdoch, who, who really don't fit very clearly within uh, the standard breakdown. And, you know, I think that the, the centenary of her, of her birth and, you know, you all had those conferences. I don't know. That was like an opportunity. It seemed to just like catch the wave somehow. Mm. Yeah, it certainly um, seems to be since, um, since as you say, Justin's wonderful um, uh, collection, Iris Murdoch Philosopher, since that, since that came out in 2012, that really did kind of, I think, start a, uh, a new kind of era of Murdoch scholarship, really. Um, yeah, the, the book that you were mentioning by Antonacci and Swiker, the um, Iris Murdoch and the Search for Human Goodness, I think is, an, is, is still an important book. As you say, it does air towards really more sort of theological end of philosophy, but um, it's, it's still an important one. So, Larry, obviously, you've been involved in uh, with Murdoch's work, and you've you've kind of um, engaged with it in the seventies and in the eighties. But then you came back to her work, I think, didn't you, in the last um, in the last decade or so, and started to think think again about where Mur- what Murdoch was saying to you, and perhaps that is that where the SCP entry came about, or was that did that come about in a, in a rather a different way? Yes, I I, I drifted into working. In, in social and political philosophy, specifically concerned with racial issues. And I just kind of drifted from moral philosophy into that. It wasn't like a decision, but, you know, these things happen in life. Sure. <laughs> and so then I, I worked in that race area and, you know, still that's in some ways my, my main, my main area, but I was uh, asked to participate in the conference that Justin's book arose from. So that was sort of an important you know, w- way that kind of started to bring me back in, but really it was, it was the 2019 conference in Oxford mm. that sort of did the trick. And I, it just like, I'm hanging around with all these people who know Murdoch. I just had never been in a space of people who you knew, they knew all the references. Mm. You know? It was just fantastic. And I just was enthralled and and just completely got into it. And I noticed that Stanford the Stanford Encyclopedia didn't have an entry on Murdoch. I was like scandalized by that. <laughs> and, and I wrote to the editors. There's yeah. one editor whom I know a bit. 
And, uh, you know, I, I propose, I said, I'm, I'm willing to write this. I think it's more important that you have it. If you've got somebody else who will do it, great. But if you don't, I'm glad to do it. So that's sort of how it came about. It was an incredibly demanding task. It took me several, several years to, to complete it. Sure. But, uh, you know, and uh, as, as I said in the introduction, a real milestone, I think, to have it there. And not just for Murdoch scholars, but, of course, for the, the wider philosophical community to kind of bring her into conversation with with, with scholars working in, in so many disparate you know venues and, diff, dis, and and different modes of thinking um but to sort of it, it's a kind of a, a flag planting exercise in the, in a sense isn't it to, to kind of um you know sh, you know um highlight the importance of her work to the, the the general community i think yes yes i mean the that encyclopedia and maybe encyclopedias in general are in a certain sense conservative in that you your entry has to be grounded in the extant literature of the time. Mm. Can't pick up some theme that you think is important but hasn't been attended to. Um, so you, you sort of you know you're basically giving the reader a sense of the of the current terrain. Sure. And um, so so I was required to sort of frame it in a way that linked that picked up the aspects of Murdoch that were of most would be of most interest to kind of the audience of of today and especially the moral philosophy audience. I kind of made a decision to own to have the um, entry only be about the about her moral philosophy, not the philosophy of art, philosophy of literature, philosophy of religion, even though, of course, all of those things are connected to her moral philosophy. Moral philosophy is, of course, the core of her of her thinking. Um, but anyway, you know, sometimes it was it felt a little bit constraining to have to kind of work within within that framework. And also the the author is not supposed to give a criticism of the of the person they're writing mm, about sure. you know, we're supposed to just like present it but of course there are ways you know in in the entry i i felt like there were some kind of internal tensions in in murdoch that that you know murdoch herself hadn't worked through so that was the way it was a kind of criticism yes it, i think you, you get that from reading it as well you you you, you sense that there is far more to to say and for for you know it, it's a it's an opening up rather than a um, a comprehensive overview isn't it and is that what you found most challenging in the writing of the entry because i imagine you know having a particular road to travel as you say there were you know there were certain restrictions on what you could and couldn't write but also the word count must have been difficult to fit to yeah. obviously murdoch's a really disparate thinker so many different kind of avenues of thought within her mind and in her writing it must have been so difficult to bring that all together yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The, the word limit was, I mean, it was, it was quite generous in a certain sense, but it, you know, she goes in so many different directions and there were so many things that I had to leave out and sort of figuring out what framework to use for it was very, it really wasn't obvious. You know, she doesn't, mm -hmm. she isn't someone with like some very totally definite, you know, so like the entry on Philip foot, you know, Murdoch's very dear friend and uh, contemporary important moral philosopher. Her her entry is much more straightforward yeah. in, in a way than um, than the the Murdoch one you know could be. And I you know I I wanted to link Murdoch to other uh, 
concerns people, you know, like the fact value issue is something that people sort of associate with Murdoch. She was really only really focused on it in the 50s, in a sense. And, um, you know, in, in some ways, the conservatism of the entry fit with her particular history because she was very involved in Oxford philosophy in the in the 50s. She was, you know, highly uh, respected and mm -hmm. was on various BBC things. And and uh, at the same time, when you kind of read those essays from the 50s, you can see that she's starting to head in directions that end up being just in a different <laughs> conceptual universe, philosophical universe from the from her contemporaries in the 50s. But it's very important to locate her within that within that Oxford analytic philosophy, the linguistic turn, Wittgenstein, the, all those things are very important to her, though she, you know, goes kind of way beyond them ultimately. Yeah, I think Philippa Foote said that Murdoch left her and Anscom and um, and Midgley. They were interested in moral language, and they and, and Murdoch was interested in writing about the moral life. And she and I think Philippa said, I think in um, Comrade's biography that she felt that Murdoch kind of left them to do her own thing. And I think that's probably a fair comment as well. Um, of course, these have been you know wonderfully brought out in the last uh, in the last year or so in the two um, quartet books by um, Lipscomb and um, Wiseman and McCall. So. And um, for those listeners who haven't got those yet, that's um, what uh, Larry's been discussing. I think those are the, probably the, the books to go to and and, and have a uh, and read that, about them there. Were there other areas that you wished that you were able to give more space to? You thought that actually, if you had the chance to maybe write a follow up, you'd want to say more about particular issues that uh, maybe mentions um, philosophy of arts, but also politics, perhaps that um, there, there's much more to be done there, I guess. Well, j just to sort of clarify, when you agree to do an entry in the Stanford Encyclopedia, you have to agree to update your entry. And I there's some like an eight year uh, period that you sort of it's something like that. I can't remember. Oh, okay. But you have so so it was more like I wrote this and the the Murdoch handbook, the Murdochian mind hadn't come out yet. Mm. Line and Dooley's collection on on uh, metaphysics as a guide to morals had just come out, but you know, it, two years before. But there was very little secondary literature on on MGM, as people refer to it. Um, and actually, there still isn't very much literature on it. But I, it was more like I did this, and I knew that when I had to, when I did the update, there was going to be a lot more <laughs> secondary literature. Sure. Burdaki in mind has 37 articles in it. Yeah. Um, it is true that, you know, I'm I'm a political philosopher and I am interested in uh, Murdoch's political philosophy, though it was, you know, it was never a very developed part of her oeuvre. But I did write the article on politics in the Murdochian in mind collection and um you know, I, I do think she has very interesting things to say. So I hope in the in the update, I'll be able to talk about that a little bit more. Excellent. Well, um, I'm, I'm sure that will, that's um, one of many projects that you have ongoing, but we'll certainly 
certainly look forward to that. I know that there is also a, a, a monograph on Murdoch and politics um, in development at the moment by a, a mutual friend of ours, but I won't talk about that too much because Justin Cat don't want to attempt fate. But um, we'll look forward. To that one. <laughs> we'll look forward to that one as well. Yeah, I was thinking when you were talking that um, although, as you say, the the Julian Hammerlinen collection on MGM is very good and does give sort of entry points, as does Mark Hopwood's entry in Madocky um, in Mind. There's so much more to say about MGM, isn't there? Um, you mentioned in your in your SCP entry that um, it's her first major work where she tries to bring all of the all of her thought together. But um, you know, obviously, we're in we're in the kind of the uh, the 30th anniversary year of the book. Uh, do you, what do you think are the main? Are, are there one or two things that you'd like to kind of um, you know say more about to, to, that you that we think that. Um, uh, critics and scholars need to give more more kind of credence to um, open up ideas from MGM. Well, it, let me just explain that in the Stanford entry, the one thread from MGM that I picked up and focused on is the idea of of duty. Yeah, because in in sovereignty of good, there is very little recognition of duty as a kind of distinctive aspect of sort of the moral life and the moral terrain. Mm. And she does something in MGM that there's little hints in, in sovereignty, but basically it's really a new idea, which is, I think she calls it a field of force where she's recognizing that there are several quite distinct kind of moral threads that are part of our moral life. And they are in, you know, tension with each other, or in any case, they're kind of distinctive threads. And so in MGM, she kind of articulates the idea of sort of individual, a kind of moral, spiritual purification, which is connected with what people call her perfectionism. That's the sovereignty version of it, where she saw the aspiration to moral perfection as the kind of appropriate moral aspiration of life but that she, what she came to believe is that something like the Kantian idea of duty as a kind of fixed reference point in life that sort of keeps you settled and knowing that there are certain things that you must do. Mm. And yeah. those things are not connected with spiritual purification particularly. And so that idea of duty is really kind of a new a new idea and it has a um political counterpart in mgm which she calls axioms mm. which i also talked about a little bit in the in the entry which is a kind of roughly a political version of the duty duty is kind of like an individual moral thing and axioms are sort of political principles that she thinks develop they have a kind of historical dimension, but sort of once they're established there, they become sort of a fixed moral reference point the way duty does as, as well. And she sees, you know, that her, her contribution, her political philosophy, her kind of social philosophy in MGM is sort of the idea that society, in contrast to the individual, can never be made anything like perfect, but it's like making the best of a bad lot in a way. Yeah. And she she says it something like that. And so you need these kind of fixed 
points that keep people who are far from perfection in their own individual lives from tearing each other apart. And so that's just not something that showed up in the early in her earlier work. And it's just a, a real fast, a, really a fascinating addition in, in MGM. Um, yeah, I, I would, I would, certainly, I would yeah. certainly agree that that is probably the main kind of um, element of development that we see in MGM and in, in relation to sovereignty of good, which obviously is, is much earlier. Although, as, as listeners will be well aware, MGM is you know de developing from a, a series of lectures in the early eighties, so it's certainly a, a, a decade really of development. Larry, what I'd like to do um, briefly, if I may, is to turn to the SCP entry because I think there's a, a, once we once we've read through the the detail of her background and life, I think probably one of the most important things for to point to um, is the uh, the points that you make in relation to uh, I think there's seven points, yeah, in relation to uh, how she deals or rather dismisses um, the ideas of R.M. Hare, and I think for those people who are either not that well aware of Murdoch's philosophy or perhaps aren't particularly philosophically adept at present, but want to be um, that kind of uh, th those seven statements that you make um, of, of Hare's account of ethics and assumptions and how she actually dismisses all of them, I think obviously have a relationship to what she was doing in the late forties and into the fifties, but also find, um, you know, are built upon, shall we say in MGM as well. Um, what was it, do you think, that she found so objectionable? As you say, she Murdoch's rejection of all of them provides an essential backdrop to her ethics. But what did you did? Was it this idea of um, the individual as a um, as the as the as the locus of all kind of um, let's let's um, of power and authority, or was it something else entirely? I think it, I mean it's difficult to pick out one of these and and to privilege it as something that she was particularly concerned to reject. Mm. But one that you mentioned, I think the way I, I would state that is that um, that Hare drawing on uh, the, the American philosopher C.L. Stevenson, who developed an idea that he called emotivism. Mm. And he's building on, I'm sorry, the, go back in the history no, of right. A.J. Ayer's Language, Truth, and Logic from 1936. Those views shared the idea that when you're talking about morality, you're not talking about something about the world. You're talking about something that individuals bring to the world. Yeah. And of course, she also saw a version of that in, in Sartre, whom she was in some ways quite enthralled by Sartre and was a very important, you know, maybe the most important person who brought the existentialists over across the pond to Britain and wrote that her, her book on Sartre in 1953. Mm -hmm. And she thought that Sartre also abandoned an idea of a moral reality out there, which has authority over you and your life. And you have to acknowledge that. And the idea that somehow values are things that I just, it's just my emotional response to the world is, uh, you know, that's a kind of preposterous idea. And, you know, it's interesting because Foote identifies the Holocaust as being a source of her, um, you know, seeing that as, as kind of ridiculous and unbelievable that that people would think that 
morality was just subjective response to it. so when millions of people are killed you think oh yeah i don't like that you know what i mean it's just like what you like and what you yeah. what you don't like um so so uh so anyway i'm sorry um i i think that you know here had a more sophisticated version of that emotivism because he thought that it didn't count as moral unless the agent was willing to universalize whatever thought or sentiment or as he called it a prescription of naming an act that you should perform mm. you had to prescribe it for all whereas you know neither a or nor nor uh stevenson had had that idea but he agreed with but Hare agreed with them in rejecting the idea that there's a moral reality. And I think, you know, over time, you know, Murdoch eventually got to a kind of platonic version of that moral. She has like a very hard moral realism. There is a moral reality out there. You can't just play around with it. It's, you know, it is there. It is authorita authoritative to you, whether you recognize that it is or not. And living your life in accordance with it is the task for human beings. That's the that's the main task of, of life. So I, I do think that, you know, Hare helped her to sort of get a grip on her, her form of moral real, realism that then, you know, she took in such creative directions and, and including in MGM. Yeah. And in MGM, of course, in the in the index, we see all the people that have either in, influenced her in, in positive or negative ways, don't we? I mean, you mentioned in, in the entry um, how important Freud was to her quite early on um, in the development of a, of a form of moral psychology, she says, but also this, uh, the question about moral reality and the questions of metaphysics. Um, but by the time we come on to MGM in, in the from the eight in the 80s, in, in obviously it publishes in 92, um, the interest and development that she has in um, in the mystics, both um, Western mystics like um, John of the Cross and Julian of Norwich, but also in um, Hinduism, in Buddhism, yeah. and in so much else besides. And that kind of that enormous list that we find, and those kind of, the kind of um, the placing together of these of, of all of these different thinkers in conversation, it does make MGM a difficult um, read and, and not a straightforward one, and perhaps. Um, perhaps we might, you know, might might discuss a little bit about what how we might access MGM um, and how we might actually think about it as not a kind of a, a straightforward work of philosophy. Yes, I mean MGM is is very challenging. The range of references, as you say, is absolutely staggering. I mean, mm. I don't know any contemporary philosopher who has such a live sense of these incredible range of historical including religious figures as as murdoch does and you know part of what's different part of what makes it hard to make use of mgm is that you know she's talking about all these people whom not all of her readers are going to be familiar with schopenhauer or you know buddhism and hinduism mm. and julian of norwich and you know and but part of what's so beautiful about the book is her particular engagement with those figures. That's like an, that's part of what's going on in that book. She's, she kind of um, 
talks about these figures. She returns to them constantly throughout the book. It's not like, I mean, she has a chapter called Schopenhauer, but she talks about Schopenhauer in 15 different chapters. Yeah. Um, you know, and Kant and, you know, of course, Plato. And it's sort of like part of what's wonderful about that book is something that you have to kind of be in philosophy to to have to understand but even a lot of philosophers would won't recognize all of those all of those references but it just makes it harder to um you know make her useful to some other audience of course there's other threads and she she talks much more about art and literature than than she has done prior to that and I, I'm less up on those issues, but of course, you know, the book itself, you can pick different parts of it, but she doesn't construct it in a way that makes it very easy to say, okay, this part's about this. And, you know, part of what's, what's a, such a great contribution of Hamelinen and Dooley's collection is that, you know, their authors have picked a particular chapter. Mm. So it, so even though a chapter might have like 15 different things going on, at least you've got an essay now that gives you sort of a bead on chapter six and chapter 10 and stuff like that. And, you know, I think that's that was a wonderful choice on their part as a way to approach it. But I, I feel, Miles, I'm, I'm kind of not sure what's going to happen with this book, whether it's ever going to be taken up in some general sort of way and and become part of philosophy courses and in graduate programs i i wish it would be mm. but i can't you know and i'm retired now so i'm kind of, you know not in that world as much i'm just not quite sure where it's gonna where it's gonna fit but i i do hope that people read it it's really an amazing mm. Amazing. It is, but, it, but it's demanding as well, isn't it? It demands that you have some background in all of those figures, and indeed, many, many more that we've uh, that, um, as you say, a staggering amount of figures that um, that um, that could be mentioned. Um, but it's also because it doesn't have a straight line running through it. There isn't a kind of a you don't move from A to B to C, and then she gives you a kind of conclusion, no. and then we move on. It's no. um, much more no. um, free flowing than that. And I guess that refers, in in some regards, it's not. A, a, it's not a work of it's obviously not a stream of consciousness work but um i'm just thinking back to what um what you wrote about that in regards to Hare's thought and her thought that um how in, um for Hare, you know this idea of an individual's consciousness a stream of consciousness rather is of comparatively little importance um but for murdoch it was important and um you know this this idea of how everyday thoughts and occurrences do come into one's mind and how they do shape our own kind of philosophical conception of the world I think we can see that within MGM as well. Yeah, MGM in a way takes the emphasis on consciousness even further and it it sort of melds it with a kind of spiritualism and and mysticism and the idea of purification of consciousness. So, you know, it, she gets to the point of thinking that it's important for the individual to sort of purify their consciousness. That idea purely by itself doesn't really exist in sovereignty, but forerunners of it are because she does recognize that people like Hare, and then just to mention this, Stuart Hampshire, to whom mm. she dedicates sovereignty. Stuart Hampshire was a, a philosopher slightly younger than Hare, whom she really admired, but she didn't admire Hare at all. But she did admire um, Hampshire because Hampshire sort of articulated a kind of philosophical psychology that she thought was wrong, but it 
underlay the assumptions that Hare tacitly made. And so that's why Hampshire is actually her, uh, you know, the interlocutor that she's she's bouncing off in 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 sovereignty. But Hampshire has this I shares with Hare the idea that somehow the inner life is important only insofar as it's kind of about to issue in action. Yeah. And so, you know, over time, she just comes to really turn that on its head. And in MGM, the life of action, almost sometimes it almost disappears. And it's just like the focus is on getting your consciousness straight. And of course, there's, you know, there's a Christian version of that and there's a Buddhist version mm. of that as well. Um, and so, you know, one recognizes that, but the, the connection with life and engaging <laughs> in life with other people sometimes sort of disappears in MGM, but it, it was still it was still there in sovereignty. But her fantastic insight is that people who engage in action, that always arises from a very complex kind of psychological place for each individual that involves imagination, it involves perception, it involves modes of attention, mm. it involves emotional responses to things. And action doesn't just come out of the will, it comes out of this deep, complex psyche. And, uh, you know, that that's just a terrific insight, which, you know, moral philosophers have taken that up, though not as much as perhaps they need to, but Yes, I was going to say we could we could, we could talk um, quite a bit more. I think this this question about particularity in, in Murdoch's work. I want to draw you back a little bit. Um, we're talking about action, obviously, um, and Hampshire's work. Um, I'm thinking really about um, the development of care ethics. Now, obviously, you've you've written ex extensively on this, um, and indeed on feminism and, and feminism. And Murdoch, as you as as you know, has been a kind of a uh, an interesting topic for um, academics over the last 20 or so years. And I wonder what you think about Murdoch's contribution to care ethics, because it seems to me that though she's been used a little, perhaps there, there is there is more to be done with Murdoch's philosophy in, in regards to uh, in, in regards to care ethics. Miles, are you suggesting that there are aspects of her view that could enrich care ethics more than has actually been done? I'm thinking that's possible. I wonder what your your thoughts on that are. Well, I I just to be honest, I hadn't thought about it that way. I sort of think that her relation to care ethics is a little bit more ambiguous because mm -hmm. an aspect that she really shares with care ethics is the idea of the personal relationship as an important kind of moral domain, you might say. It's sort of the crucial moral domain is is the way you care for the people connected to you. That's also seen as a shortcoming of, of care ethics, but leave, leaving that aside, that is something that care ethics can really draw from her and the idea of kind of seeing another person, which is, you know, her important metaphor, seeing others. Sure. But what differs a way that her views differ from, say, someone like Nell Noddings, who's one of the early care theorists, is that Noddings has a kind of affirmation of connectedness between the carer and the carey, so to speak, that they are they're connected to, to one another in a reciprocal relationship. 
But Murdoch doesn't really have that idea of that sense of connection between the two. It's more, it's more that the carer sort of stands apart and needs to see yeah. the carey in an in an accurate and loving and just way. And she she reject in, in MGM, she rejects Martin Buber, who you could see as sharing this feature with with care ethics. So of course he has a whole theological framework for it. But um, you know, the I-thou relationship is this very distinctive relationship with the two parties interacting with each other and affecting each other. And that idea is not really a Murdochian idea. Yeah. So I sort of think that that her ethics is a kind of ambiguous legacy for for care ethics in, in those respect respects. Yes, perhaps there's more more discussion, more work to be done on it. I suppose that the the connection between I and thou and the uh, and the care and the carey that you've just been talking about perhaps is better played out in the fiction than it is in the in the philosophy. And yeah. um, I know that you are obviously a philosophy professor, but I also know that you've read some of the fiction. You do make mention of it in the SCP entry, albeit briefly. I wonder whether you think um, you know. I don't want to get draw you too much on this, but whether you think her ideas are played out in her fiction, some of her philosophical ideas. Or do you think she keeps them at arm's length as two separate projects? Well, you know, of course, this is something you've you've written authoritatively about. Well, a little bit. So, <laughs> but this is a question for you, I think. I'm not, you know, I, I'm not in any way an aficionado of her, of, of literature in general. And, I, you know, I don't, so I feel a little bit, you know, uneasy. But anyway, I'll I'll say some, some things about okay. I She seemed to have a view that is expressed in that that interview with Brian McGee from 77 or so, in which she, she puts forth a view of philosophy, which makes her literature unable to be anything informed by, by philosophy. And yet it just seems obvious in reading those novels that there are connections between her substantive philosophical views and and what's going on in those novels. I mean, it's not only that sometimes characters in the novels act like they're her, you know what I mean? They, they state these, these philosophical positions, but that the, the issues going on between people about how difficult it is to see another person clearly in a way that she articulates in the moral philosophy. I mean, she brilliantly shows all these ways that we are kept from being able to do that with each, with each other. And so, you know, I, I just think it's obvious that her her literature does, uh, you know, her novels do express her her philosophical views. But I do also think that there's a part of her that retained a view of philosophy that kind of comes out of the linguistic and kind of analytic tradition, where it's there's there's no room for a personal voice. It's totally impersonal, and it's everything is very clear. And as you said earlier, you go from A to B to C. And sometimes I think that you know sometimes she expresses the idea that she isn't a really very good philosopher compared to her friend, Foot, and 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 so on. And I think that she was never. Well, in, in the 50s essays, you can see that she's somewhat capable of constructing an article in that way, but it's not really natural to her. And by time, you know, the essays from the 60s that become sovereignty, she's really gone in a different direction, but she hasn't given up this ideal 
of philosophy as having this pristine clarity. Yeah. And uh, I think it's like it didn't help her to have that view because then she didn't. I mean, she was she was doing philosophy, but in just a completely different way. And of course, in MGM, as you were suggesting, in MGM, you know, things kind of circle around each other and she comes back to things and she's engaging with a figure, but she doesn't say anything really definitive. She's just exploring different things. That is all fabulously philosophical, but not according to the definition that she was officially embracing in her <laughs> in her interview with McGee. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely ag ag agree with you on that one. I mean, the, I think the McGee interview is 77, isn't it? And then she obviously, you know, that she's writing this in the writing MGM in the next decade. So uh, you can you can certainly see that there's a, a, a strong tension there, both in the interview with McGee, uh, which um, for listeners who haven't heard it yet, I'm sure most people have, but you can find that on the on the on the SoundCloud and on the um, SoundCloud link below. Um the the tension there and also the the tension that she has within the within the philosophy um certainly in the in the later material in mgm um i think that's absolutely um absolutely clear to see that um, she's still trying to work out how how best to um to to um to process and then ultimately to um to put down on paper these ideas and she certainly has you know major periods within the 1980s where she's having difficulty a, a lot of difficulty with actually putting mgm together as well as of course writing the novels and writing um, yeah. The unpublished monograph on Heidegger, which obviously we, we we look forward to seeing at some point in the in the future. Larry, it's been a real pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for talking to us about uh, not just about the the entry that you've written for Stanford, which I think is is wonderful. Everybody ought to read it. I think that's really a, a, a landmark a landmark piece that um, we'll be referring to for for many years to come. But also for talking more generally about her work and uh, and about your own engagement with it. I think it's been you know, it's been a, a fascinating. Uh, a fascinating uh, three quarters of an hour or so. At the end of every podcast, I always ask my guests to choose a work by Murdoch that they should pick up and read. Um, it can be philosophy or it, or it can be indeed be fiction one or one of the essays from the 50s or 60s, whatever you like. But what would you like to recommend, uh, maybe based on the podcast or on um, other thoughts that you've been having that um, one of our, li our listeners should uh, pick up and read? Well, in terms of philosophic works, there there, there aren't that many to choose from. And, you know, I, I, I do think sovereignty is just a fantastic work, but I would recommend Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals, MGM. I mean, I just think anyone could find, if you have to be willing to kind of stick with it a little while, but everyone would find things that they would be greatly enriched in that, by reading in that book. Yeah, I think I'd absolutely agree with you. Although I think you are probably the first person to recommend MGM. <laughs> on the podcast but that's fine um i think you know um, to start up with the first chapter and um, and don't worry if you don't understand some bits of it just keep keep going through the keep going and, and see how you get on with it there will be something that speaks to you um from that book from that book larry it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for coming on and um thank you. and uh, obviously as always thank you to everybody for listening <laughs>